Welcome to Thoughts on the Social World, socialworldpodcast.com, sponsored by David Niven Associates. Your host is Dave Niven. Welcome to the Social World Podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Niven. This is Podcast 12, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this edition. So thanks for listening. Um, I'm delighted to tell you that we're currently being downloaded in addition to the United Kingdom in 23 countries and 22 American states. Now, thanks especially today to Diona, who christened my new service, SpeakPipe, which uh, I'd encourage you to consider as well. You'll just find the just one click beside the blog or the podcast, beside each post, and you can leave a voice message. You can tell me what you think, and you can tell me maybe what you'd like to hear. So... Have a look at that and give me some more feedback and especially thanks to those of you who've done so already. Thank you. Now, this week I'm going to be looking at communities as a general title. And I'm going to finish by including a guest interview where Demelza Stokes interviews Salash Morumpi, who's a Maasai guide in the North Conservancy of Maasai Mara in Kenya. But before that, we're going to have a look at... Uh, things a bit more locally in the UK and then worldwide. I used to work for a charity called Shelter, which was a campaign for the homeless back in the 1970s. I worked in Scotland. And one of the big issues then was the creation and the building of new towns in the United Kingdom. Now, these were places that had a lot of visionary uh, thinking attached to it, ideology, etc., and that this was meant to be a fresh new start for people and a brand new opportunity to, to live a, a much more comfortable lifestyle, reflecting the times. But what it did was actually just attract mainly young couples, probably with just one or two children, away from um, parts of cities that were decaying um, and left back in the cities people like uh, the elderly, um, those that were sick or those that were habitually unemployed. And the thinking, goodness knows how this came about, but the thinking was that industrialists would regenerate these areas by making new business opportunities in them and using the local population to regenerate. Now, what industrialist in his or her right mind would set up businesses where the workforce on uh, available workforce were old, sick, or habitually unemployed people. And apart from that, these new towns were considerable distances away from where people grew up and for where the areas and the communities that they were used to and had been part of and had formed, if you like, a kind of a human blanket around these youngsters when they grew up. So, for example, there were the corner shops that were threatened. There were the other small businesses that went out of business very quickly. There were uh, relatives, grandparents who lived just around the corner previously, but who now involved an enormous trip to go and visit or themselves having to be particularly, um, find a particularly difficult trip to get on public transport to get anywhere near these new towns. Apart from the, 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 the fact of their streets should have been 
taken one at a time, take the people out to these new towns six months at a time, regenerate, redo, refurbish the streets that they were in, the streets they grew up in, the streets, the community they knew, and put people back there into better housing and better repaired housing. That seemed to be such a logical thing. But they didn't do it. So they took ages to refurbish parts of towns, much longer than they should have taken. And also what they did in some of the bigger cities in the UK, high-rise living, high-rise flats. Now, goodness knows what the architects at the time were thinking. They made these flats apparently attractive, apparently modern, and apparently this was the new way, the new age, that people could be stacked up like kind of bees in a hive. But what they forgot was human nature. What they forgot was that people need space. People need defensible space and even a tiny little bit of garden, something to defend. But they didn't build that into any of the thinking. And these high-rise flats, of course, couldn't accommodate it. No flat can have a garden as such. So what happened was increasing vandalism, increasing crime, increasing boredom, increasing uh, gangs in the community, and, and the whole thing just spiraled into kind of a, almost like despair and escalated into substandard housing and substandard communities. Uh, just because the architects and the planners didn't actually consider the human needs of the community. They put in some shops, they put in malls, they put in pubs they put in, whatever, but they didn't give people proper space, proper defensible space that they would care for, that something that they would really be attached to. And so people just didn't care and people allowed an awful lot of degeneration to happen. So it's particularly, particularly poignant looking back on that era now and thinking just how many opportunities were missed. Now look a bit wider. Let's think about communities over the world. And in so many cases, we're destroying them. In so many cases, we're we are actually undermining the whole value systems within certain areas in order to pursue greed, in order to pursue uh, resources out the land, and in order to actually somehow or other westernize lots of people because we think that's the best way. So... I mean, look at language, which of course is absolutely crucial and the communication being the key to maintaining strong communities. One language is virtually lost every two weeks in the world and they say there's only seven or 8,000 indigenous languages left. And if we're going to be losing so many so quickly and so consistently, then I think probably by the next century at least half of the languages that exist today, half of the culture, half of the half history of communities is going to disappear forever if we're not careful. Now communities evolve and change, but they are lessened by the erosion of the cultural glue, such as language, that sticks them together. Now We've seen research over the years and we've seen that it's shown that we worry more about local issues in the main than we do sometimes about the big national strategic issues. The loss of amenities, the loss of shops in the UK, the loss of local post offices, local police stations, as well as becoming more urban, 
more sensitized, formulaic society uh, where respect and care for people in the community, care of our elderly, has faded so much and where poor transport links in rural areas deny people the opportunity to, to, to interact with each other and to actually maintain the strength of communities. And it's all mirrored on a local, national and international scale. So from when people have exposed hitherto undiscovered tribes in, in deep rainforest and tried to sort of put Western uh, value systems onto them, technology onto them, unrealistic expectations to the younger generations onto them, the same as the rest of us, but in their cases far more acute when offering commodities, etc. So to the destruction of the pasture for their productive animals, and this is something that we'll take up a little bit more when we're going to listen to uh, our interview with um, the Maasai guy later. But it's all invasive activity that erodes previously indigenous belief systems and culturally acceptable and fascinating ways of life. And I just believe that we change too fast. Technology may speed up information, like I'm talking to you now, and experience of all things, but we've cut away so many communities, we've cut away so much culture, we've cut away languages, we've cut away history, interest, and the depth of the human experience that it just you just wonder just how fast we're actually going to um, how fast we're going to just destroy what's good in the world. Now, I want to just give a little bit of an introduction to our next section. Salash Morumpi is a guide in the North Conservancy of the Maasai Mara. And effectively, I want you to listen to Demelza Stokes' interview with him on site in, in um, Kenya. Now, the Maasai live semi-nomadically under a communal land management system, and they believe very deeply in communal access to water and land. Um, but in the last few decades, increasingly, the um, private ownership of land which was, of course, foreign to the Maasai, now face, they, they, they face such a, a social and economic change that threatens their very existence. Now, there are several game reserves that are frequently visited by Western tourists located in the Maasai Mara, but the Maasai are actually prohibited from accessing water or pasture in the reserves themselves. There's about half a million to one million Maasai Mara who live in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania, but they, I say half a million to a million because the Maasai themselves will quite openly admit that they don't like census, and therefore when they are asked to um, declare numbers and where they are, they tend to be quite reluctant. It's, I find, a fascinating area, a fascinating culture, and I'm delighted to introduce Demelza 
interviewing Salash Marumpi. So hi Salash, um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I'm talking to Salash here in the Mara North Conservancy, close to the Maasai Mara National Park in Western Kenya. Um, thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure, it's my pleasure and it's been great uh, getting to meet and knowing you. Thank you. Yep. And you, so you've been a safari guide here in the Maasai Mara for how long? I have been a guide for the last just a little bit over 10 years now. Okay. And enjoying it and every day is still a new day for me. So you, um, you're a Maasai tribesman? Yeah, I am originally from this region. My tribe is Maasai. And I was brought up slightly to the east of here, about 30 kilometers away. Okay. So I'm at home. Brilliant. Yeah. So you didn't train at a guiding school. You, you've you been a guide for about a decade, right? Yes. But your natural knowledge from growing up led you to become a guide, would you say? Absolutely. Um, when I started becoming a guide, that's when the plans for the school, the Koyaki guiding schools, were just getting underway. And I missed it for just by almost a year because probably one year or two after my, into my guiding profession, the school started and I wanted to become a guide earlier than that. So I incorporated my local knowledge that was instilled into me by the elders back in the village with the scientific facts that you find in the books because they're necessary and it's worked incredibly well. Well, yeah, your scientific knowledge is amazing i mean did you say to yourself at the beginning right i'm going to take the time to learn all the latin names for everything in the mara i did for two reasons one it's it was gonna be and it is now part of my day-to-day um time in the office it's a typical um conversation in my office number one and number two you had to do, even though I didn't go to a guiding school, I had to sit for a, um, an accreditation to become a guide, a test that accredits you to become a guide, and they ask you all these questions. So apart from just learning for the exam bit of it, I have learned how important it was to learn them because the last 10 years, a day hardly passes by without me <laughs> at least uttering one Latin word a day. <laughs> well, yeah, you certainly have during my trip. I mean, I've noticed every every plant, you're like, oh, this is the Latin name. Amazing wealth of knowledge you have. So would you say that that's... Is it an intrinsic part of Maasai culture that kids learn about nature from an early age? Or are you it is, a rare case? It's by default that they learn it because they don't stay in cities. They live with nature. They live it go out with cows and sheep and as I told you the other day my 10 year old boys can now name for me I did an interesting little test not that I wanted to test them I was just showing them this incredible app in an iPad about birds of East Africa and their calls and I tapped all the birds in their local area and they mentioned them and they just named for me their names like that so That's fantastic. it is one thing that they 
naturally and by default grow up with. Okay. They've got you. Because there are a lot of trees with important medicinal uses. As I said yesterday, some are used for toothbrushes. The little remedy I gave you, I hope it works. <laughs> Osimam gratisimam is the name of that little stomach remedy. And some are poisonous. So mm -hmm. you've got to differentiate them. Otherwise, as a kid, as you grow, you end up chewing things that are not good for your health. Okay, yeah. yeah, so it's something that is like obligatory. So you said your boys are already up on um, learning the knowledge. Yep. What, what are your hopes for them? I know you have five kids, an eldest daughter and, <laughs> and, and two sets of twins, which is amazing. It's incredible, yeah. It's an amazing. I mean, I didn't know in a very short, in six years, from one child to five was like record speed. Not many people can do it. Not many so. people can do it. And every time people ask me how many kids I have, I tell them I'm, I have five and they ask me the ages and I tell them they're between seven and 13. And they're like, whoa, one every year. But it's then that I tell them I've got two sets of twins. And... I really hope, as I said, for my kids, it's good for them to make decisions. And you want them to make right decisions in life, not necessarily to become a guide as their daddy is. As I said, what I would love them to do or to become is responsible, respectable citizens. So I try to the best of my ability. might not necessarily be 100% of the right thing, but to create an environment for them to be able to make right decisions. Whether it ends up being working in an office in London or in New York or being a guide in the Mara, so long as they make right decisions for themselves. I think that's a great philosophy. Thank you. Um, do you see them taking on their Maasai culture and adapting it to modern ways? Have you seen that in villages already? Well, to be honest, the culture is under great pressure because sometimes all these Western things and um, things that are introduced look so good and some people embrace them without really understanding them and it leaves them in a wobbly state, like you're neither really into your culture nor the new thing that have been introduced to you. There's but a kind of confused identity. Exactly. ends up being a very confusing identity. And that's why I told you, well, in the last few years, I've started really looking at why do we celebrate Christmas? Mm -hmm. What people celebrate for, for Christmas these days is like good-looking, presentable people with nice clothing, presents, and it's connected to the Bible, which is a biblical occasion, and it doesn't seem like anybody is doing it anymore. And as I said, um, it's then that you become confused. You don't really know why this particular celebration that was introduced to you is being celebrated. And you end up being a person who really doesn't know who, which way he's standing on. Mm. So... We've got a whole lot of people who really are into their culture. They've gone to school and a lot of them have come back to the village and brought up the knowledge they learned in schools to the village. But I still think there's a great percentage of people that have just been carried away by all these new goodies that have been brought to their eyes. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, one last question. Yeah. 
What are your hopes for conservancies and conservation of wildlife in the Mara for the future? My hope and prayer is that it succeeds because, one, apart from the primary provision of livelihood to some, it's so beautiful to be lost. It's just incredibly and naturally designed in a manner that it's one place that, you know, every time I wake up in the morning, even feeling a little bit down, when I go out for a drive, I just become a happy person. It's an incredible place. It brings people of all walks of life, from billionaires to the half-nots, from leaders to the non-leaders to the same level. You get out there to nature and you all become the same. It's so beautiful. It's got then a lot of um, um, advantages compared to if it's let go. Right now, we've got what we call grazing zones and plants in the conservancies. And it's just working amazingly good because we used to take our cars all the way across to the escarpment because nobody had a plan for grazing and we grazed all over. And when the drought came, we take our cows to go look for pastures across the river because it's all been grazed, not a single blade. Now, with grazing and proper planning, when hard times come, the Maasais have somewhere that they're given by the authorities running the conservancies to graze there, which basically perpetuates the existence of their culture because cows are the backbone of their tradition and culture and the way they live. Yes. So conservancies also play a great deal in making sure that the culture and tradition doesn't really get lost or diluted. Okay. Yeah. So would you say that they're a way of reconciling traditional Maasai ways of life with the reality that these wilderness areas need to be saved? It's... Absolutely. I mean, one thing is they exist even before people came with ideas of properly managing it because of the culture. Yeah. So now that we've got people who think who are trained to conserve, if that is incorporated with the cultural practices, it can go on forever. Sky's the limit. Yeah, it can go on forever because they, it did not been for our culture of um, livestock husbandry, our farming with cows and sheep and goats that we adore you wouldn't have all this beauty. And that is long before people came who were trained and taught that, oh, you can really do this to make conservation even better. Okay. And they're now right in their doorstep. So think about it. It can be a win-win case for everybody. Okay. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Salash. You're yeah. so much welcome. My pleasure, yeah. Year. I'm really looking forward. Let's do it again. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> As always, thanks very much indeed for listening. And if I could just ask that uh, if you've gone through iTunes, uh, it would be great if you either subscribed and got a regular download or you could leave a review. That would be really helpful. Uh, if you want to go through the website, it's the socialworldpodcast.com and you can just download or listen to it straight away. You can also go through Stitcher Radio and uh, just click the little thumbs up um, and that would be very helpful too as well. Or, in fact, if you've got an Android, you could uh, just download the podcast app. 
But whatever it is you're listening on, I really appreciate it and see you next time. Thank you.